Welcome to the next episode of the Wonderful People podcast, continuing our episode with legend of Liverpool Football Club, Craig Johnston. We hope you enjoy part two of this episode, so without further ado, let's get into Craig's wonderful story. Now I've got a question for you, Craig, because you mentioned that Brazilians are not very good at cricket. Yes. And, and, and I think the same applies with footballers are not always uh, great with music and singing. And but, so but. you, uh, you for your sins, with all your other talents, you created the Anfield Rap. And yeah. I think you were also involved in the World in Motion. A yeah. little bit about how you ended up doing that. Uh, oh, the World in Motion. Well, 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 the Anfield rap was every year they had a, a club song, um, you know, and most of them are ordinary, including Glory, Glory, Man United. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's pretty ordinary. Uh, I don't know about the Gooners. Uh, what's yours, Daniel? We don't really, uh, do you know what? I don't know. I'm are you not, sure you're a Gooner? He's not a fan, really, Craig. <laughs> All right, I'll let you off. I'll we've got loads off. of chance, but I can't think of any decent official tracks we've done. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, there's not too many around, was my point. No, no. So, uh, so um, uh, basically, somebody had approached the group with a with a, a song, and uh, they all said, no, no, it's rubbish. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And I said, well, look, why don't I write a rap? Because I write stuff all the time. I always have. Always have. You know, notes, poems. Uh, I've got to work out how to do short podcasts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, so I said, well, I'll write a rap. So uh, I, um, I went home and I brought it back the next day. And I said, I've written about the accents of the dressing room, you know, and uh, I said, but we'll base it on the Scouse accent, you know, uh, to start with because of John Aldrich and Steve McMahon. So the whole, the whole Anfield rap is about how many different accents from Zimbabwean with Grobola to uh, Jan Mulvey, Danish, myself, uh, Scottish, Irish, uh, and a few poms in there. Um, so that's what that was about. And uh, uh, again, another time I'll, I'll sing it to you. <laughs> and uh, it happened very quickly. And rap hadn't really arrived in England, um, but I loved Run DMC and all those old rappers, uh, older Rappers, so it was kind of new, and there was a guy called Derek B in from London, right? So I said to Derek, I said, "Look, come up to Liverpool. Um, I got to do this in a hurry." And and it, it went to number three in the charts. Uh, I actually, you, you know, had, and I hate to say this, one of the very few times I remember getting beat at Wembley was by Arsenal, and it was the League Cup final, and I can't remember another game getting beat. Honestly, honestly, I'm not saying that. Right, but the the Gunners beat us that day. Anyway, had we won, this would have gone to number one, I'm sure, the Anfield rap. But Madonna had bought out like a virgin. So that went to number one and we got beat. So anyway, that that, 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 that summer, the Euros were on. And, um, you know, I I used to do all sorts of dumb things with John Barnes and uh, Bruce Grobler in the dressing room. Songs, jokes, speeches, you know, just write stuff. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm sitting in the house Saturday, Sunday afternoon. The phone rings, and it's John Barnes. He says, he said, mate, he said, I'm with a band called New Order, right, and we're at, at the recording studio just behind your house in, um, uh, this was in London. And I said, well, well, yeah. And I said, well, what's the problem? They said, well, look, I'm here with Peter Beamsley. 
Peter Beardsley and uh, Chris Waddle and the other lads and, and, and we're doing the song. I said, yeah, but what's the problem? Uh, and he said, we can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said, I know, I've heard you, I've heard you. So, uh, so they said, look, you've got to come down here and solve the problem because they're thinking about scrapping the, the, the song, you know, and it's for the, the Euros, 96, the Euros. So I said, okay, okay. I said, give me five minutes. So I um, put my pants on. Uh, it's always good when you leave the house. So uh, I raced down there. It was just Bisham Abbey it was, a recording studio, just behind me. Anyway, I got down there and they were trying to sing, love's got the world in motion. And mate, it was dreadful. It was, it, it was horrendous. So I said, well, well you, need, you need just to, to do a rap section. They said, yes, we know. That's why we phoned you. And I said, Okay, okay, so I said, give me a napkin. So then I started writing, you know, for, for Digger, Digger Barnes. Uh, catch me if you can, because I'm the England man, and what you're looking at is the master plan, um, blah, blah, blah. And I gave that to him, and uh, uh, the rest of it, how's it going? We ain't no hooligans, this ain't no football song, something, something, right from wrong. Anyway, it was a long time ago, but I wrote it on the spot, right? <laughs> Digger, Digger got into his Jamaica mode. And that uh, then, it then became uh, uh, number one. Uh, I think the, the lo longest selling number one for a long, long time. And by the way, right, <laughs> if there's any New Order band members listening to that, I didn't get any royalties for that. So somebody <laughs> from New Order, right, I'm telling you, oh. owes me a pint of beer. Anyway, there you go. Well, that was <laughs> very good. So somehow you, you, everything is going amazingly well. You've had a brilliant run, but you retired at 27, which is just when most players are reaching their peak. So what, what was the reason you retired? And then I'm going to roll in the second question with it, because you went on to invent the best-selling football boot in the world whilst in retirement. So can I ask you to tell us, why you had to leave so early? Oh, the reason I had to leave, um, not Liverpool, but football, is my, my sister had a horrendous uh, accident. My little sister, Faye, um, her husband had, uh, had died um, a couple of weeks previously overseas. So Faye had to go and get his belongings um, um, and take them to uh, Morocco uh, to, to his family. Anyway, while she was having a shower upstairs in a very, very tiny block of flats in Morocco, the gas flame on the, the hot water heater uh, blew out. So the gas, uh, she was inhaling the gas in a very small room and it, it actually uh, knocked her uh, unconscious. So as she fell down, she hit her head on the side of the bath, which completely knocked her out uh, cold. And she was in there for about an hour before someone came to uh, see what was wrong. So the gas was replacing the oxygen in, in her brain. So it, it was uh, like, like being suffocated and lack of oxygen. So she was in a coma in um, a hospital in Morocco. And uh, I got a call from my parents in Australia and I was just about to go to the Christmas party, the Liverpool Christmas party. And mum and dad said, your sister's in a hospital in Morocco and she's unconscious and in a coma. Um, and we don't know what to do. Um, and, and I said, well, look, you don't want to be in a hospital in Morocco, uh, whatever happens. 
So I, I, I had to drop everything uh, immediately. And I, I went to London, I got an um, aeroplane, a pri private air ambulance to fly me there and then wait uh, on the runway, um, uh, go to the hospital, get paid, wait on the runway and then bring her back to London. And then mum and dad came down to, uh, to London and Faye came out of the coma, but we all thought that she would recover and she, she was in a vegetative state, uh, couldn't talk or couldn't react uh, or you thought she couldn't, um, but we thought she'd get better. And unfortunately, all these years later, she, she's uh, still in the same uh, state. Uh, mum and mum's still looking after her, dad, dad's gone. So, uh, you know, I was going up and down the motorway um, uh, through training and nobody knew this had happened because, you know, what the media are like and uh, the club didn't want them to know. I spe specifically didn't, even the players didn't know. Um, but Kenny knew as the manager and the secretary and the chairman knew. So we kept it very quiet. And then um, that ate away at me. And, uh, you know, going down to see Faye on the train after tra training and, you know, we were very similar as people. Uh, she was, you know, only a year younger than me, but kind of a mini me and uh, same enthusiasm for life. It was just tough on me and it had its own mental effects. So I thought I've achieved what I, I really needed to here. I need to go back and help mum and dad with Faye and she'll get better and I'll come back to football. And uh, I went home and Faye didn't get better and uh, I had no money and the club actually froze my assets because this had never happened before. Nobody had ever walked away from a career, especially the best team in the world at the time at 27. Uh, and uh, I was convinced Faye would come good and... Uh, and uh, I had no money. So, um, you know, after a year or two, Graham uh, then became manager of the club, Graham Souness, and he invited me back. And I came back for a trial. And uh, for whatever reason, there was a miscommunication. And I had no money. Uh, and I was a startup. I, I left school when I was 15, so I had no qualifications. I just had this whirlwind journey that I told you about at Middlesbrough and Liverpool of just magic and, you know, uh, as I call my life, if I do a story, it's triumph, tra tragedy, and, and, and wanting to leave a legacy. That's, that's the story of, 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 of you know, the, the, the phases of my life. So to, to finish off, I made the decision to walk away, and I said to the club, I'll never play football again. And to this day, I have never, ever played football again for anyone else. Um, and unfortunately, Faye didn't get better. I had no money, so I had to get a job. So I um, went and worked for um, Kerry Packer, uh, Channel 9, Wide World of Sports, doing little um, sports uh, stories with, with, with athletes. And uh, that was the end of Liverpool. And then, whilst you were in Australia, you came up with this idea for a football boot that would allow young kids to be able to bend a ball around a, a wall. <laughs> Just to, and that ended up with the best-selling football boot in the world. That's I know it's a long story, but if you can give us the potted version of that, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah the headlines. I'll, I'll try my best, but I'd spent a good part of my life trying to understand what part of foot on what part of ball to what effect, right? And um, I, I said I'd never play again, and I actually said I'd, I'd never get involved with the game again, and I was... In Australia, in a 
in northern Sydney, northern beaches, a place called Av Avalon. And uh, the local kids knocked on the door and said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Johnston, we're the local Avalon soccer team. I don't know these kids were nine, ten, cute as all hell, you know. Soccer ball under the arm. Um, Mr. Johnston, um, can you come and coach us? We're not very good. So I, I, I looked at them and uh, beautiful little faces and good manners. Uh, and I loved that. So I said, mate, I'm in. I said, I'll see you down there in 15 minutes. So I went down there and uh, the kid was right. They weren't very good. And uh, the funny thing is I was teaching them exactly what you said, mate. I was, teach Phil, I was teaching them how to swerve a ball. I said, look, to swerve a ball, you've got to brush the outside of it so that it spins in the air like a table tennis bat and a table tennis ball for top spin and backspin. And they said, oh, okay. And they said, yep, that's fine, Mr. Johnston, but our boots are made of leather, not the rubber like the table tennis, and it's raining and our boots are, are, are all slippery, and that's why it's not working. And then it started to really pour down, and we had to postpone the, uh, the, the session. Um, so as I was driving home, I thought, those little kids are right. So I went into the shed, and I got an old table tennis bat, and I took the, the peel of, of, of rubber, and I stuck it on my boot, and I wrapped elastic band around it, and I went back out in the rain, and uh, football's made of uh, polyurethane, um, and I kicked the ball, right, with a bit of, bit of, you know, bit of language on it, and, uh, right, you could hear the squeal of the butadine in the rubber engaging into the, 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 poly, uh, the poly surface, and it squealed like a pig. And I said, that's it. I said, the kids are right, right? I then, uh, this is, again, pre-internet and pre-a lot of stuff, I, uh, I, I understood what a patent was, um, and I did the whole thing with lawyers. And I said, well, look, what if we create a, a, a bigger sweet spot, like a table, uh, you know, like a um, tennis racket, and we created more grip. So then I got that patented, and, and that's actually what I took to Adidas. So, wow. uh, and again, thanks to those kids, and I should give them royalties, but, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but the key thing is I'd spent years and years and years understanding what we were doing and uh, maybe one day I will I'll go back to the Avalon Soccer Club and say look there's uh, the Craig Johnston uh, next predator which I'm working on by the way which I'm working on Wait. there they are there's a whole whole bunch for the team for free and then I'll uh, absolve my uh, commitment. Uh, Dan <laughs> does that sound well, wonderful? It absolutely does sound wonderful and I think obviously there's a whole podcast there in terms of invention taking a product to market I'm sure you've got the highs and lows of doing that as well. Mate, Dan, let's do it, because I'm going to tell you the story to finish the subject, right? So I took it to Adidas, right, and they said it'll never work. No, thank you. Bugger off. Same as Jack Charlton. <laughs> yeah, so that's the story, uh, you know. Yeah. I, I, I would I'll love to hear what, that. I'll tell you what happened going forward, but, but not for now. Like, there's three or four we'll save till next time. We'll do another one. Okay. But, but The Predator is a brilliant, brilliant story. Uh, and you need to hear it, but just not now. Absolutely. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Completely different question. How yes. did you meet Phil, and why did you give him the nickname The Vortex? Because he is a vortex, because he attracts all kinds of people into his spider's web, right, of... Uh, of, of, of uh, well, love of love and respect and kindness 
and his willingness to want to help people uh, be better than what they are. And you're talking about someone who's a genius at, uh, at getting things done and, and uh, bringing teams together and uh, doing what only Phil can do. So I, I give him loads of stick uh, <laughs> uh, and he wouldn't expect anything else. But uh, th this is a, a, a real, real beautiful human being because I've, I've seen him completely drunk. I've seen him completely naked. I've seen him completely sober. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I'll tell you another thing. I'll tell you another thing. I would never have got to um, Middlesbrough and the opportunity of my parents having sold their house. But what I'm working on now is such an incredibly brilliant project that will make every player, girl and boy on the planet or pro, a better player than what they are. And it's not boots. It's, 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 it's like a golf handicap for soccer players that, uh, that's incredibly clever and they can do it in the backyard. But anyway, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to embarrass you, Phil, or embarrass myself, but I didn't have the money to pay for um, a pilot that I'd arranged with the Premier League academies. And I'm talking about um, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, uh, Spurs. All the academies had agreed to do this skills measurement project uh, that I was doing. It's called Super Skills. And I didn't have the money. And, and Phil put his hand in his pocket, not, not only his own pocket, but he got two of his friends right, and close associates to give me $250,000. Right? And the pilot was incredibly successful and everybody loved it. Right? And at the last minute, the Premier League reneged on the deal. And I went bankrupt. And I still owe Phil and his mates $250,000. Until my dying breath, I will work to get Phil his money back. And he's never, ever once asked for it or complained or said, what happened there? And you're an idiot. Uh, and I feel like an idiot. Well, I don't. I, I, uh, I, uh, I got screwed, but you do. Um, and uh, that's the story. And, uh, you know. Having said that, Craig, and that's really mm -hmm. lovely of you to say that, but you did a lot of damage to my kettle. Because I, out of pure generosity, I said, why don't you come and stay around my flat tonight? Let's go out and have a drink. Stay at the yeah. flat. Well, well, I thought it was a sheep. <laughs> so Craig says, shall we have a copper? He puts my electric kettle on the gas hob. <laughs> it was, you know, I'm having a quick wee-wee and all I could smell was burning coming out of the kitchen. Well, hang, hang on a sec. We set the scene, right? We were at the Groucho Club. We were at... Every single place in London, which, which is trendy and hip, because it feels a little bit trendy and hip if you didn't know. I've got to give lots of, and for a Manchester boy. So we've, <laughs> we've drunk at every establishment there was to drink. And then we get home to his lovely little place at half past four, half past five in the morning. And yes, he did disappear, but he's given me the kettle, right? And, and there's the, the hob. And I'm thinking, well, I just fill this up with water and I put it on the gas hob. I didn't know that there was a lead to be plugged in. And it was <laughs> so it's a true story, but you could smell. And I'm thinking, what's that know. dreadful burning plastic smell? So anyway, so we, we had uh, the smell of balm cakes and the smell of plastic. And uh, he's always a uh, no, that so that's, that's 250,000 plus, plus a plastic kettle. Plus a kettle. Uh, the, the bills are racking up. Before you die. <laughs> I need a new kettle. <laughs> <laughs>
I think the wonderful, the wonderful questions are ready for Craig. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we could talk all day, but Craig, one of the things we ask all of our guests, particularly because of um, the period of time we find ourselves in, is pretty tough out there for a lot of people, you know, in, in many different ways. But what was the last thing that you saw and you thought, do you know what, that's wonderful? Um, yeah, um, a couple of days ago, I ride my bike every day. I'm, this town is, is Newcastle's on the beach but it's an old coal mining town and coal mining era. I, I can see the Hunter Valley, which is wines over there. But I, 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 I drive my bike, ride my bike to, um, to the old disused uh, coal loader yards. Oh, they're actually not disused. They're, they're, they're old, but they're, they're still being used. And there was a, 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 you know, a dreadfully ugly factory and trains and a storm was coming. Um, and in the background was the city of Newcastle. And it was just the, um, the most amazing shot. Uh, it almost brought me to tears. I had my camera. So, um, so I did. I shot, I shot it. And uh, when I got home, I looked at it. And I thought, that is just beautiful. Wow. It, 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 it's probably the ugliest place in the world you've ever seen in terms of grit and grime. You know, like old, um, old factory warehouses in Birmingham or, or, yeah, or Manchester. Yeah. Or that really, like a Lowy, uh, Lowry painting it was, with, with the light and the, the sun. You know what I'll do? I'll send it to you. Uh, I was just going to ask that. Send it to us. I'd love to see it. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'll send it to you. And Craig, I, I came to visit you once uh, when you were living on the golf course in America amongst yeah. a lot of billionaires. And yes. uh, I remember going around with you. I think it was New Year's Day because nobody was playing golf and you you we went around the golf course we, you with your camera taking yes. pictures of the ama amazing shots but yes. um you were the photographer at the golf course and nobody knew who you were for yeah. for all of those years can you just tell us the the tiger woods story i know there are many stories but tell us that one because i know tiger lived on that golf course yeah yeah well well, well a lot of uh, a lot of players lived on either that or Lake Nona, 30 of the world's best golfers lived on either one. And uh, Viv's dad, who owns Tottenham, he owned both the golf courses as well. So, so they were all residents of, of, and Vivian, you know, was my uh, fiance actually, Viv. I was with Viv for 20 years uh, and little, little sweetheart. And uh, so Viv ran the show. So, so all, all, the, all the players, um, all wanted their, their, their kids photographed and, you know, all shots of them. So they'd bring me into their house and, and do all of that stuff. Um, so I photographed um, Tiger's kids. I photographed uh, Stewie Appleby, oh, the names, Ian Poulter, Justin Rose, Ernie Els, the names just went on, and Sergio Garcia went on and on and on. And, um, and when we used to go to Europe and they'd play tournaments there, all the Irish and English uh, all the caddies for all these guys were all Irish and English, right? And then one of them said, and they, they'd say, oh, that's Vivian, Vivian Lewis's uh, you know, boyfriend or, you know, uh, whatever. And that was good. That was good because uh, it's just the way it was. And, and, and most of them said, oh, the photographer guy, you're the photographer guy, because I was always in their face with pictures and all of that stuff. And, uh, and I followed Tiger a lot. So anyway, um, one year we went to the... Um, uh, uh, McManus tournament, uh, JP McManus. 
He's got this big, big, every four years they do this. And Tiger and all the golfers, he, he flies them all over on one private jet and they all get there. Anyway, so Viv's dad and uh, uh, JP were organizing the, the, the celebrities and the, the golfers. And anyway, a couple of celebrities dropped out. So they were short of a celebrity. And then, and then someone said, well, why don't you put Craig Johnston in there instead? So they phoned me and said, look, you're not doing the photographs this year. You're playing because we want you to play with uh, Jose Maria Osabel or something, however you say it. I said, all right, no worries, no worries. You know? um, so anyway, next day I turn up and I've got Johnston written on my back, you know, and, uh, and, and so has Elizabeth uh, and so has the caddy. So now we've all got Johnston written on the back. And Tiger Woods walks past and I got John, uh, Johnson written on there. And he said, how come the photographer guy is playing golf? And Stewie Apple, the Aussie, the Aussie guys and uh, Nick O'Hearn, they just start, and, and Polter, obviously Polter's a Gunas fan and uh, Justin Rose is a Chelsea fan. They were just beside themselves that Tiger couldn't figure out why the photographer guy had got a Guernsey, you know. And, uh, anyway, so the, tech, the Irish caddies went, and tig went over to Tiger and said, don't you know who this guy is? He said, yes. He said, I've had dinner with him, you know, and Vivian, you know, 10, 20, he photographed my kids. He's the photographer guys. And they were just laughing. They said, no, no, he, he played for Liverpool for, for, for 10 years. And Tiger said, get out of it, man. And they, <laughs> <laughs> so to Tiger Woods, you, you were someone completely different. I was a photographer you, guy. You were the photographer guy. He lived in he lived in exactly the same uh, street where we lived. He lived like just down the street, and you'd see him every night at dinner. And Vivian ran the show. Vivian wow. ran the club, so she yeah. was very close with his missus and all of that stuff. So absolutely brilliant. Last question, Craig, as we come to Lanham. It's a brilliant story. As an agency, we're all about sort of taking complex things and trying to make them wonderfully simple. Now, it feels like you are too, but what's one of life's complexities you'd like to see made simpler? You, you know, I, I do a lot of this, I, I, I swear, and it, 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 comes, it comes naturally. And I know I have some long, boring stories, but uh, mate, it, it's what I try and do all the time. Um, and I was, I was thinking about, yeah, yeah, it's been a tough time and, and COVID has made it tough. But you know what? Life's tough, right? And, and I... In coaching soccer, um, you coach kids, you know, and uh, coaching adults, you coach kids. You know, Jurgen Klopp has taught those collective bunch of, of athletes from all over the world, you know, he's taught them a lot about life, you know, as did Bill Shankly teach me, as did Jock Steen, as did, you know, uh, the, 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 the famous uh, Man United coaches. Um, so um, I have a problem with kids today and where we're all headed, given where we came from and Phil's generation and my generation. And I see there's a lot of joy missing in the world, right? And, and just fun and uh, frivolity. It's, there's so much gray and messages out there. And I'm gonna to get to the point in a minute, uh, what the simplicity, but what's the problem? The problem is gray. Messages from here, messages from there. Kids don't know what right and wrong is, what black and white is, who the good guys and who the bad guys were. You know, we did, right? And we, we had a clear way to say no and a clear way to say yes. And uh, But I don't see it now. So I, I don't see a lot of joy. Now, 
years ago, when I used to walk down the street, anywhere in the world, it was all different, right? Different countries, different cultures, but the smile. So my problem in life that I want to see simplified is why is it so hard for people just to give you a smile in the street? When you realize what a smile does for people, you know, when you get a, you know, a young person smiling at you or an old person smiling at you, the value that it does to you personally is, is immense. But nobody seems to do it anymore and less and less. They're all suspicious. They all think, oh, you're a, a you know, pervert or an idiot or, a, you know, what does he want, you know, or what does she want? And uh, there's nothing more fabulous than, than a couple of smiles, you know, and uh, I do it myself because I've got a long, long, especially with Muslim people. You, you know why? I don't think anybody ever smiles at, smiles at them. I go out of my way to smile at them. By the way, my sister, my sisters and my mum converted to Islam years ago, which is part of the story and another part of the story. But, uh, uh, but I go out of my way and the reaction that you get from them is so amazingly soulful that they're like thanking you with their eyes, thanking you for acknowledging them, right, as being, you know, worthy of your smile, mm. right? And you get three and four times much back. So I just worry that as, a, as, a, as an end result of all this grey everyone's getting and where we're going as a, as a culture and a species, I'd love to see everybody just breaking down a smile for the sake of getting one back and getting a, you know, a nice warm feeling in your heart that I'm a human, they're a human, and we've just had a moment. That's it. Brilliant answer. What a way to end. What a way to end. Craig, thank you very much, mate. So over there in Australia, what time is it now? It is 8.39 at night. So have you had dinner yet? No, no. I'm going to have a beer and a dinner right now. Go and have some dinner. I'm <laughs> going to have a slice of toast because it's breakfast time here. And let's catch up soon. Phil, thank you very much for being such an incredibly good friend and human being, mate. I'd love to see you when all, all of this is over. Mate, good on you. You're a genius. And, uh, mate, I, I won't forget I owe you in many, many ways. <laughs> the so, kettle. The kettle. Well, well that, that too. See <laughs> <laughs> you, boys. And, uh, Thanks, Greg. Uh, awesome. Craig Johnson, thank you so much. So that's it for part two of Craig Johnston's episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening in. To find out more, visit bewonderful.co.uk.